So if you don't know, we did a series called Homesick. We finished it. And now we're jumping into the book of Galatians. Uh, Wednesday night, we're teaching through Galatians. Brilliant book. It's called the Magna Carta of Christian Freedom. It's incredible. Uh, You can join us. On Sundays, we're going to grab a little topic from it. So we're doing that today. It'll be in Galatians chapter 4. You can open there if you want. I'll introduce it by asking you guys, do you know what a pet peeve is? I've got some I wrote down from the internet, the source of all that's funny. So here's pet peeve number one. People who discuss the importance of a healthy diet while you're eating ice cream. That one got me. I'm like, can you wait till I finish this half gallon? Then tell me. Okay? People who clear their throat in a disgusting way. Want me to demonstrate for you? When you pull a string hanging from your shirt and it doesn't break, but it only gets longer, and you end up with a string and not a shirt. Yep. Mumbling then annoyedly saying, forget it, when people don't hear what you say. That drives me crazy. My kids do it all the time. Like, tell me, what did you just say? And here's mine. In college, when a professor would say, hey, we can get out of class early unless someone has a question. And there was always that guy, right? Trying to impress the teacher. Oh, so annoying. A few of them never made it back to class. And then the last one, when someone sneezes into their hand and wants to shake yours. Knuckles. Just remember knuckles. So pet peeves are things that drive a certain individual crazy. Galatians is Paul's pet peeve. He is unhinged in this book. He is relentless. He hammers because there's something that has set him off. It's like no other book in the Bible. It's raw, it's unfiltered, it's amazing. Because Paul has this pet peeve that he says, that can't happen, all right? And I think we can get the core of why in this little section at the beginning of chapter four. In fact, right after this, in verse 12, he actually switches gears a bit. So hopefully I can catch you guys up on what Galatians is about in these verses. And it's actually pretty shocking The ramifications of what Paul says to me are shocking. So let's check it out. Galatians 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, 
than an heir through God. Formerly, verse 8, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, you, how can you turn back unto the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Here's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to fly over this text at 30,000 feet, give you what it's saying. We're going to land, and then we're going to go into a haunted house because it's kind of shocking what happens here, okay? So here's the flyover. Verses 1 and 2 say this. We're enslaved sons. What we should be is we should be owners, rulers. We should have this inheritance, but instead of having ownership and rule, we're enslaved. And that's really just summarizing the Bible. Genesis 1 you guys are my image bearers. Rule and reign. Co-rule with me. Be my, essentially, rule on earth. As I rule in heaven, you guys rule down here. But we know what happens. We ended up giving over the rightful rule of earth to somebody else. There's another force that took over. The prince of the power of the error now. Right? So we're enslaved sons. Good news. Verse 4. Cosmic rescue. God says, it can't go like that, so I'm going to send my son down there, and he's going to defeat these evil powers. He's going to set you guys free, and you're going to be readopted back into my family once again as image bearers, receiving your inheritance, which is to rule and reign with me forever. That's great news. But then, verse 8, however, you've put yourself back under slavery again. Even though you're adopted, even though you've been given this inheritance, you're going back to something that makes you a slave again. You're putting the chains back on. You've forgotten who you are, and because you forgot who you are, you're acting like a slave again. Okay? Does that make sense? That's those verses. Okay? Now, Twilight Zone. So, if we're going to stay heirs... Adopted sons, have an inheritance, ruling, reigning like we're supposed to, then we need to identify what is it that enslaves us? What is the thing that we are now, verse 8 and 9, putting ourselves back under again that's taking away from us our sonship, our rule, our identification, right? So there's this word, and it's a very tricky word. It's used twice here. In my translation, the ESV, verse 3, translates it, you're enslaved to the elementary principles. It's the Greek word stoikion. It's used again in verse 9, twice. It's only used three times in the whole New Testament. So it's a rare word which makes it harder to kind of figure out. Paul uses it all three times. So people are like, what does stoikion mean? Some people say it's the, it's the elements of nature, like the atom, like the molecule. It's the very basic building blocks. There are some that say that. There are some that say no. It's the elementary forces of nature, like wind and fire and water. It's that thing. 
right? So there's just all this debate on it. And there's others that say, no, it's, it's like we have a term today. You're battered by the elements. It's that. It's these things that happen to us. Maybe it's that. Well, here's what I think. There's two ways that you find how to translate ancient words. You look at the context in which they were used, and you look at the culture in which they were used. Those two things. So if you look at the context of this, especially verses 8 and 9, I'll make it as simple as I can. Verse 8 says this. When you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now, this is a very rough translation, too. What does it mean that you're enslaved to something that's not a god? Well, you're enslaved to something. A better translation of this is you put yourself into slavery to so-called gods, to some kind of power. And then verse 8 says that in slavery is called elementary principles. So it ties those two together. Whatever it is that we are enslaved to, these so-called gods are the stoicheon. So that's the context. Culture is really important. If you could go back 2,000 years and live as a Greek or a Roman or a Babylonian, here's what you believed. Behind the elements of the world was a god. So Poseidon was the god of the sea, right? Zeus was the god of the sky. Hera was the god of uh, heaven. Um, Ishtar was the god of love and war, which I love that because aren't they the same thing? She's the god of both those things, right? So behind every kind of force or uh, element of nature, they said behind that is actually this power, this God. So that's the context in which these words were used. So when you start trying to putting all the pieces together, you look at how Paul spoke about these idols of Zeus or idols of Poseidon, where he said, hey, it's not just stone or wood. Behind that, 1 Corinthians would say, there's actually a demonic force. There's a demonic power behind that thing. So be very careful. You're not just worshiping some kind of stone image. There's a power behind it. And you read the Old Testament as well, you see that there's really these, these other powers that are there. Satan shows up. In Genesis chapter 3, these powers show up, okay? So to make it as clear as I can, it's this. These stoicheon, I am convinced, and I'm not alone. I have a lot of commentaries that believe the same thing. These stoicheon are these demonic powers. Like literally the New Testament word demon, all it meant 2,000 years ago was a lesser god, a demigod, a lesser god. So you have these stoicheon that are these, these demonic, dark powers. Here's where it gets freaky. How do you and I enslave ourselves to these stoicheon? So when you start thinking about the demonic, what kind of images come to your mind? Fluffy bunnies? Cute little puppies? No, right? The exorcist with the girl's head turning 180 degrees, Right? It's, it's violence and dark and bad and all that kind of stuff, right? So how does Paul say, here's how you end up enslaved to that kind of stuff? Is it black magic? Witchcraft? Seances? Drugs? Pharmacia? Black tar heroin? No. It would be really nice if it was. Because if it was those things, then most of us could say, 
I'm good. I got nothing to worry about, right? I don't think most of us in here are saying, you know, I was really thinking about going to a seance, but I just don't know, you know? I've never been to one before. You know, I'm kind of intrigued by it, like what happens there. Uh, I mean, what's the worst that could happen to me in that seance? I could be inhabited by Satan, which probably wouldn't be good. Maybe I'll ask Matt. I'll email Matt. No. Email Mark. Ask him. It's a better question for him. <laughs> right? So we have, most of us can be like, ah, I'm never going to have to worry about that. But that's not what Paul says actually gets you underneath these powers. And this is why Galatians to me is just a hurricane. Every time I read Galatians, it doesn't matter where I've been at in my faith. It's broke some kind of window and changed my view. Every time. It's a radical book. So let me read for you verses 8 through 11 again and see if you can pick out what it is that puts us back under the stoicheon, the dark powers. Let me read verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that we have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. What is it? Verse 10, you're observing days and months and seasons and years. That's what puts you back underneath the power of these demonic forces. Isn't that freaky? It's religious observance. It's church attendance. It's church attendance, then look out exorcism, and your head's going to spin 180 degrees. What in the world you're saying? Yeah, that's what you're supposed to say. What in the world? Like religious observance? So what does that mean, Matt? Are you going to take Christmas away from us? Yep. Merry Festivus. It's all we can celebrate now. No, that's not what's being said. Romans 14 makes it really clear that we have the freedom to worship Jesus on whatever day we choose. Sunday or Saturday, Monday or Friday, doesn't matter. We can go to church on Easter and Christmas. That's not what's being said. It's much deeper. And I'm guessing the majority of us are in here. We didn't come this morning saying, hey, I want to go to church and worship a demon, right? But, but if I'm here, if I came to church this morning and this was my attitude and I came to church and I said, I'm going to church because I want to get God off my back. And I want to check the list that says, okay, I went to church on Sunday. I'm good with God. I'm doing verse 10. And I'm putting myself under a demonic deception. How sobering is that? How many people do that? We have to move our service from here to the Grants Pass High Gym on Easter. You know why? Because we got a thousand extra people who are probably doing verse 10. I'm just checking the box. I'm getting God off my back. I'm good. I'm done. How sobering is that? What are you saying, Matt? 
we shouldn't go to church? Church attendance is bad? I mean, what are you saying? I say it's like this. It's like, it's like weed and feed. You ever use weed and feed? Brilliant stuff, right? You put the same exact stuff on your lawn. It makes the grass grow strong and it kills the weeds. Also kills you as well, but hey, that's a, that's a byproduct of the world we live in. That's church. Church for those that come with the attitude, I just am moved by God's love. And I can't wait to offer up to him the sacrifice of my lips. And I want to be around God's people. And I can't wait to go. Man, it's feed for you. It's a rocket boost for your faith, no doubt. But this text would say, if I'm coming to church trying to fulfill some kind of moral obligation, believing that if I go to church, God will love me more and accept me more. If I'm doing that, then I believe a doctrine from the, from the pit of hell. And you're putting yourself in a dangerous position. That's what this is saying right here. It's absolutely saying that. If you read Galatians, and I hope you do, like it, it, it just, for me, reframes the gospel. So I think very often we think about the gospel in legal terms, like, okay, well, I was, you know, guilty, but now I'm not guilty. But what Galatians uses, it uses a whole different slew of terms. And almost all of them are relationship terms. And you see them right in these verses. Abba, Father, you become a son, you become an heir. Verse eight, verse nine, I should say, says you've come to know God or rather to be known by God. God. Like all these terms are what? They're relational terms. That's not about so much about having correct doctrine, which is important, but correct doctrine is important because of it, who it points to and who it causes me to fall in love with. Just having correct doctrine can make you kind of actually rude, but correct doctrine that makes me known by God and to know God and to love him is brilliant and beautiful. It's feed for my soul. So it's all these terms. It's not about correct doctrine. It's about being connected. It's about relationship. It's about love. It's about those things. And so this text is saying your motive for what you do when it comes to church observance really matters. So a couple of weeks ago in Galatians, I explained it like this. It's on a Wednesday night. That was good. One ring. Brilliant. Wish everyone could do that. So I said, imagine I left work and I was heading home and I stopped by the store and I picked up some flowers for my wife. I took them home and I gave the flowers to my wife and she's like, oh, thank you. You were thinking about me. You remembered how much you loved me. You wanted to bless me. You, you, oh, thanks, honey. And I said, no, 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 that's not why I gave you the flowers at all. No, I gave you the flowers so you'd get off my back. So you'd let me sit around all day Saturday and watch football. And you'd feed me guacamole and chips. I'm going to eat some. It will not be guacamole and chips, though. Right? Because motive matters. The motive for why I do what I do matters. And for God, it's the same thing. Am I coming to church because I'm moved and motivated by a love for him? Or am I coming to church to say, okay, God, get off my back? When I do it that way, when I do it that way, Paul says, look out, you're going back to this legalistic performance principle that does not work, and it's really, really dangerous, really dangerous. So I have a book I read a long time ago. It's Flannery O'Connor. 
Um, I read it and I didn't know she was a lady. I thought she was a guy because it's a pretty raw book. But it's about this guy and it's his path to conversion. And there's this line in this book that it's just, it's to me is one that just sticks in my mind. It says this, this guy, as he's progressing, quote, there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin, end quote. What was being said by that is this. If you have perfect church attendance, and if you can just check all the boxes right, then guess what? You don't need Jesus. That's what Paul's getting at. If you begin to believe that if I just do all these things over here, I'm good with God. I performed. He accepts me based on this, this list. Then you don't need Jesus anymore. And that is Paul's pet peeve. Paul comes unglued on that. Because it's not about rules. It's about a relationship. We know that already. I did a marriage counseling with a couple a number of years ago. And I was walking with them and trying to figure out like what was wrong. They weren't good at communicating that. I was trying to like just dig in. And the guy, the husband was brilliant. Like he worked a full-time job. He would come home in the evenings and almost every evening he would cook the meal. And then he would clean up the meal and then he'd put the kids down. I'm like, you're not allowed to talk to my wife. I'll tell you what. <laughs> like, dude, the bar is high with you, man. He would take them, you know, take the kids. and just, I was like, man, you're amazing. And yet they're having these troubles. And so I'm just asking questions. And, and finally, one day I asked this question. I said, um, do you have a temper? Maybe that's it. Maybe this dude loses his temper all the time. And the husband said this. He goes, no, I'm always level. I never lose my temper. And the wife, she's like, Pete. And I looked at her, I'm like, what? She goes, I wish he would get mad. I'm like, whoa, that's a first I've ever heard that. Right? Not now, please. You know the right time to get mad is when you get in the car and you're driving home. Right? Save it for then. So the next thing she said was this. She said, if you got mad, then I would know you cared. I went, that's the problem. He had the perfect checklist. But guess what? There was no relationship. And their marriage was crumbling because they were just roommates. See, we know innately that what matters is not rules, it's relationship. And that's what Paul's saying. You need to be known by God. You need to be his kids. You need to be adopted by him. That's it. So he is hammering away. The whole book of Galatians is just taking a hammer to performance, trying to earn righteousness from God. The good news is this. God dealt with human inadequacy, unworthiness. That's the gospel. That Jesus is the perfect attender. That Jesus is the one that fulfills all those things and that you and I get grafted into that relationship and we get adopted based on his performance and you can never, ever, ever beat what Jesus did. And the moment that we go back to this checklist thing, what we're saying is, no, I think I can do better. No, I can one-up Jesus. No way. You fail. You fail. All right? So let me try to conclude with this one thought. Because Galatians, to me, it's the period on really this long arc of Scripture. And if you read the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there are all these rules about impurity. 
Have you ever read those? Don't touch a dead body. Don't touch somebody that's sick. Don't touch this kind of bodily fluid. Don't touch mold on a wall. Like there's all these rules about it. And if you break those rules, if you touch something, then you are classified as unclean, impure. And you can't go to the temple and you lose fellowship with God, right? What all those rules are saying is this. Death is infectious. Disease is infectious. That it's going to take over and kill the world. Look out for death, right? We know that, don't we? If you take 10 healthy people and put them in a room and bring in one dude with the flu into that room, what happens? Do the 10 healthy people, does their health heal the one sick guy? No, all 10 get the flu, right? Please take your sick days. (laughs) We know that. You can't march into a hyper-clean hospital operating room with poop on your shoe, right? Because you're opening up a person and they'll get sick by that. You don't pick your nose and grab the scalpel. Like we understand innately disease, death is infectious. We know that, all right? So that's the Old Testament. Then Jesus comes and he gives this sermon, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where he's laying out, this is how the kingdom's supposed to work. And then right after that is no coincidence. Chapter eight begins with this, a leper coming to Jesus. Now, if you've been in church, you know leprosy, bad. Leprosy is everything of the impurity laws all on one person. He's it. He is walking death. Fingers are falling off. Nose is falling off. Ears are falling off. Hair is falling off. They just look like, they look like a zombie. That's what they look like. They are walking Old Testament impurity, uncleanness. They had to yell wherever they went, unclean. They had to stay 50 feet away from people. That's what this guy is. So he comes. The absolute image of the law. Here it is, impure, cut off, disconnected. And he comes to Jesus. And this is what he says. It's very interesting. He says, would you make me clean? Not heal me. Not give me back my fingers, my nose, my ears, Would you make me clean? What was he begging for? Relationship. I've been cut off from God. I can't go to the temple. I can't praise him. Make me clean so I can be connected again to God. I want relationship with God. That's what he's actually asking for. Not heal me, make me clean. All the Old Testament laws that had separated him from that, right? What does Jesus do? The Bible says that Jesus reached out his hand And I can just imagine the crowd that's watching this saying, no, don't touch him. You'll be unclean. Death is infectious. Don't touch him. But what does Jesus do? He touches the leper. And does Jesus become a leper? Does he get infected by the disease? No. What happens? The man is healed and made clean. It's a radical statement that Jesus says, I've changed it. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, death was infectious. But in the New Covenant, my life is infectious. And if you'll let me touch you, I will plant my life in you, and it will grow in you. Because you're connected to me. It's John chapter 15. You abide in me. And when you abide in me, just connected to me, what happens is you become fruitful and you grow. Because that's my life. My life has that kind of power. That's what Paul's getting at. 
Don't go back to these rules that just makes death infectious. Why would you do that? The author of life is here. Just let him touch you. His life is infectious. It'll heal you and transform you and make you clean. Just let him touch you. That's this entire thing. Why would you go back to any other system? Right? It's communion for me. I grew up in a church where communion was taught like this. Before you take communion, once a month, before you take communion, make sure that you have no unconfessed sins. Because if you take communion with unconfessed sin, God will kill you. Anyone with that? Right? <laughs> so I was always, it was every first Sunday of the month, there was a quandary in my soul. Because I knew I've got unconfessed sin. And I knew if I take communion, God will kill me. If I refuse to take communion, my mom will kill me. So which one do I choose? It was just, it was a, I hated communion because I had that theology. But it's wrong. And what changed me on it was this, when I read what Jesus actually says about communion. When Jesus gives it, he breaks the bread and he takes the cup and he says, do this often in remembrance of how wicked you were this last week. Do this often in remembrance of what a leper you are. Do this often in remembrance of how much sin you haven't confessed this week. Now, what does he say? Do this often in remembrance of me, the author of life, the one that can touch your heart and plant a life in it that will grow and transform you. Do this often in remembrance of me, that I defeated the dark powers that want to enslave you, that I'm the king, that I'm the hero. And when you remember me and let my life be planted in you, it grows into something beautiful and incredible. Remember me. That's communion. And so for me, sometimes I take communion. You know what I confess? I confess on verse 10. Jesus, this past week, I tried to get you to love me more by reading my Bible or praying all good things or attending church or doing, I try to do that. And I'm putting myself under this, this slavery, right? When that happens, church becomes a police force. It's no longer family. Did you do this? Where, where, right? That's not family. Jesus, I confess that I was trying to earn what can only be given. Forgive me of that. Touch my heart. Cleanse me from anger and from bitterness because you're the only one that can do it. I can't do it. You ever try to change your heart? It's impossible. We need to be like the leper just coming to Jesus saying, Clean me, touch me, heal me, because I can't do it. Not by my checklist, not by how much church attendance I have. I can't do it. So I'm going to eat and I'm going to drink of the one that can, the one that can touch me and cleanse me. That's the gospel. That's Galatians. And so Jesus, this night, this day, I pray as we take the cup and take the body, I ask that you would forgive my heart for believing that I can earn what you only give. That when I believe that I not only deny myself and deny the church and deny Christianity, I deny you. Forgive me of that. Heal me from the tendency to want to perform for you. 
when you want me to be your son, you want us to be your family. I ask this day, Lord, for those that have come in here impure, that we would know that it's not church attendance that heals us or cures us, that we're like the lepers that simply need to kneel before you, our king and our master, and say, clean me up. And you touch us, and your life is infectious. So I ask as we eat and as we drink this day that your life would be planted back inside of us and it would heal us. It would make us pure. That Lord, anger or jealousy or bitterness or wrath or whatever the, 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 the enemy of our soul, whatever venom he has put into us, that you would be the antidote for it this day. And then we could leave here knowing that we are sons and daughters, knowing that we are heirs, knowing that we've been set free to be true human and to live like you did. So touch and heal us, we pray this day. And we ask this in your name. Amen.